prayer that invites the presence of God to be with us at all times. And so as we prepare ourselves to live out this objective, we are working our way through the biblical narrative, highlighting the activity of the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, God at work in us and in the church. And so last week, Cassie taught and we reflected on the Spirit in creation. It's work in organizing reality and filling the lungs of the first humans. And today, we will reflect on the Spirit in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and specifically on one rarely talked about passage in Exodus 35. This passage in Exodus centers on Bazel El and Oheliab, two craftsmen filled with the Spirit of God in order to create the tent of meeting as instructed by God. These are two men whose names I will butcher 30 more times throughout this sermon. So if I say it differently another time, just roll with me. I'm only mortal. The text that introduces them, the text that Bryce read, reads a little bit like a tedious job description. It has likely ruined many of our Bible in a year reading plans. You get to Exodus 35 and you're like, I just, I, I can't do this. I'm going back to the Gospels. In many ways, it's like a rambling document drafted by an overzealous HR rep. But it is this beautiful vision of work. It invites us to consider our jobs, our chores, and our mundane tasks as an invitation to collaborate with the Spirit of God. So, as we begin to explore work and spirit, we're going to begin with a place any good talk on work should, with a graduation speech. The late cultural commentator David Foster Wallace, in his address to Kenyon College, said this, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. It could be argued that despite the decline of religious institutions, that we are in the midst of a full-blown religious revival. In spite of secularism's rise, the religious impulse, the spiritual ache, and the instinct to worship have not gone away. They've just been transferred. The new religion of choice for most Americans is politics. But there is another pseudo-religion that has quietly grown in popularity. It is a religion that demands our allegiance over and against our allegiance to Jesus. It is what Derek Thompson, a staff writer for The Atlantic, calls workism. Workism is the belief that our job is not just for economic production or personal provision, but that a job can be where a job should be the center of our identity. The gospel of workism is if, if you give more hours at your desk, 
if you respond to more emails, if you are more available than that work rival, you will discover fulfillment. You'll discover meaning all while making money. It's priests and it's prophets preach that a career can satisfy our deepest longings, giving us more purpose, more freedom, and more happiness. But that's not really true, is it? Sociologist of religion, Carolyn Chin, recently wrote an article for the Times entitled, When Your Job Fills In for Your Faith, That's a Problem. In that article, she writes this, People told me over and over that their careers are spiritual journeys and their work is a calling. Many said that they had become more spiritual, more whole, and connected after working in tech. She was specifically speaking of those in Silicon Valley. Their workplaces were communities where they found belonging, meaning, and purpose. But as I discovered during my research, the gospel of work is thin gruel, an ethically empty solution to meeting our essential need for belonging and meaning, and it is starving us as individuals and communities. Or as Derek Thompson puts it, our desks were never meant to be our altars. Workism is a bad religion. It's a worldview that says you are only valuable for what you do, what you produce, not for who you are. Workism's promise of more purpose, more meaning, and more free time have only led to more anxiety, more disappointment, and more burnout. And while work is a very good thing and an important part of our humanity, it is a cruel God and a bad religion. For educated urbanites especially, ambitious to leave a mark and eager to change the world, workism can be the altar on which we sacrifice our faith, our marriages, our families, our communities, our integrity, and our soul. So many see their career as the means by which they are seen, known, and feel, feel significant. And it's a bad religion. Set against this culture stands a biblical vision of work, not as identity, but as collaboration. And two artisans, Bezel El and Ohiliab, show us that we have been invited by God to collaborate with his spirit in order to produce good for God's glory. So here's the agenda for today. I want to briefly sketch out a theology of work, specifically through the creation narrative. And then we're going to walk through this overlooked text, pondering what it might mean for us in our work, and uncovering how we might go about collaborating with the Spirit of God. So let's take a look at the Exodus story. Um, this will probably be a sermon in which the sermon notes online will be really helpful because I got to move quick. So if you get lost easily, it's all online for you. Let's take a look at Exodus. 
In chapters 1 through 12, we're told this story of Israel and their journey out of Egyptian slavery. In chapters 13 through 27, we read of Israel's time in the wilderness after slavery, complete with all kinds of complaining, bitterness, and a lot of weird. Then in chapters 27 through 40, there's this story of Moses' reception of the law and the process of the Israelites becoming the people of God. In Exodus 31 specifically, God pulls Moses aside and in the hidden place gives Moses instructions regarding the craftsmen, the methods, and the plan to develop a place for God's presence to dwell. And this place will become known as the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And in Exodus 35, Moses repeats those instructions to the people of Israel. Exodus 35, verse 30. And Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. In this opening line, only Bezalel is mentioned. It's likely because he served as the foreman overseeing the entire project, and Oheliab functioned as his right-hand man. But whatever the reason, what is clear is that God is calling these men to a particular work and to a job. This is not the first place God has given his people work to do. In Genesis 1, we're told that humanity, made in the likeness of God, is brought to life by the Spirit of God, that they might have dominion over all life on earth. To have dominion, the Hebrew verb radah, is the first job description in all of Scripture. It is a description with royal implications of ruling, stewarding, and reigning, connected to humanity's identity as God's image bearers. This designation, image of God, was typically reserved for kings alone throughout the ancient Near East to legitimize their rule. So Egypt, Babylon, Assyria all applied quasi-divine identities to their monarchs, meaning that their king was like a god and everyone else existed to serve his desires. All people, basically slave labor, used to accomplish the whims of their godlike king. So set the Genesis account within this context. It is a subversive critique of their surrounding culture, declaring that all people, not just the king, have value and identity. And thus, slave labor or slave-like labor is unfitting for any made in the image of God because we all have worth written into our genetic code. But that does not mean that there is not work for us to do. For to be made in the image of God is in part to be given a royal task of caring for and cultivating God's good creation. And in Genesis 2, we're told that having this dominion looks a lot like work. And specifically, it looks a lot like yard work. <laughs> Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
Sometimes I think we imagine the Garden of Eden as some like outdoor nature retreat that hippies love to take with mud baths, hot springs, and naked beaches. But humanity had work to do in Genesis. Adam is entrusted to rule creation by gardening it. He's called to prune, to water, and to harvest. So the takeaway from this is that work is meant to organize what is in such a way that all flourish. This is how the late Tim Keller defines work. Work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Our aim is to take the raw elements of creation and to develop them in such a way that we draw out its potential and create an Eden-like environment for all humans to flourish in relationship to God, to one another, and to our world. And there are as many examples of this as there are tasks. An easy example, when a farmer tills the ground, plants the seed, protects the plant, and harvests her product, she is drawing the creative potential out of a seed, out of the ground, for the sake of her flourishing and for the sake of her neighbors. When an architect takes an idea and begins to draw out a plan, he organizes wood, steel, rocks, and gravity itself in such a way that shelter, a meeting place, or a home is created. When a parent takes the raw materials of a child, hunger, sleepiness, curiosity, and sass, and they channel it, discipline it, and love it, they are helping a little person grow for the sake of their flourishing and for the sake of the world. Often we think of work as what we get paid for, but within the biblical framework, work covers a much wider range of activities. Mowing, dishes, home repair, cooking, parenting, what we do at home and what we do in the proverbial office all become us rearranging the raw materials of creation and partnering with God to take his world forward. See, you thought you were just changing a diaper. No, you are rearranging the raw materials of creation so that we can all flourish. Parents, thank you for your work. In Exodus 35, Bazel, El, and Oheliab are invited to follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps to rearrange the raw materials in such a way that humanity could meet with God. And the language of this invitation is significant. Moses says, Bazel, El is called by God handpicked for a particular task. This is not the first instance of God calling someone to a task, nor will it be the last. This language of calling, which is frequently used throughout the library of scripture, is linked to the doctrine of vocation. Vocation derives from the Latin meaning to call, and it is this felt sense of appointment, designation, and assignment. It has this sense of a purpose attached, which is distinguishable from occupation, which would simply be what we do for money. 
Oftentimes, we, we have a tendency in our vocabulary to say, what do you do for your vocation? And that can be significantly different than what you do for an occupation. One of the lies of workism is that you are missing out if you do not feel called to your day job, or if you are not paid for what you are passionate about. In workism, our day job becomes the means by which we produce an identity. But in the Christian vocation, our identity is first rooted in being image bearers, being loved by our God, and our work, whether paid or unpaid, becomes how we explore that identity out in the world. And so with that, I want to mention three layers to Christian vocation that are, I think are helpful because we use this language of called very often. First and most generally, all people are called to follow Jesus. The gospel is first and foremost the call to repent and believe that the kingdom is at hand and Jesus is Lord. When Jesus calls out to Peter and Andrew, he calls them to put down their nets and follow him. Our first vocation is to be followers of the risen Messiah. That is something all people are called to. Second, we are called to recognize our work as an act of discipleship. The Apostle Paul writes this in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. reward excuse me. You are serving the Lord your Christ. Now, to be clear, this is not an upper management-sponsored message to encourage you to work harder for the Lord. <laughs> we are whole beings called to both work and to rest. To be made in the image of God is to be deserving of dignity, respect, and rest. And I recognize, particularly in corporate settings, sometimes this work harder can feel like a platitude that isn't helpful. That said, can you imagine Jesus being a bad craftsman? Can you imagine Jesus quiet quitting on the family business? Do you think he made ugly homes or crooked foundations? Of course not. When we begin to understand our work as discipleship, the first step is simply doing our job well. Dorothy Sayers puts it, puts it this way. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Hear this, the first demand your faith makes on you is to do a good job, to bring all of yourself to whatever your work is, whether that be parenting, coding, or lawn work. The invitation of our Lord is to experience our work as discipleship. The final layer of our vocation is that we are called to work for the good of all and for the glory of God. There's this very real sense that every follower of Jesus has a part to play. 
that every single one of us can hear the whisper of the Spirit leading us to good work. But this also means that there are jobs and there is work that the people of God should not undertake. There are obvious examples of immoral and evil work, but there are also less obvious examples. Should I be in weapons development or an occupation that advances violence? Should I be in a marketing firm that sells unrealistic body standards to teenagers? Should I work for a real estate development company that is careless in who it displaces? Should I be in an office culture that values my output over my humanity? I recognize that as I read these questions, it makes it seem like these are black and white questions. I also realize that not every one of us has the privilege of making a decision and just picking up and finding new work. So there is grace in all this. But my simple aim is to say that not all work is acceptable for the people of God. And that we should be reflecting on this as we go about our work. And the final thing I'll mention on vocation is that these three layers are incredibly broad. There is a significant amount of creativity, imagination, and personal preference that goes into the biblical vision of work. In a time in which the average adult switches careers three to seven times, this is really good news. You may have felt called to medicine at 18, but you can still express that calling to care for your fellow humans as a stay-at-home parent or as an entrepreneur. You can express that desire to care as a gardener. I think God gives us a lot of freedom to uncover how we want to go about our work. He gives us a lot of freedom to explore what it means to work in accordance and alongside the Spirit. So back to our passage. God has called Bezel El to create the tabernacle, and he has filled them with the Spirit to do just that. Let's look at verse 31. And God has filled Bezel El with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. This is the first time anyone in the biblical text is said to be filled with the Spirit of God. And I think there is something incredibly wonderful and significant that the very first mention of the Spirit is in Genesis 1, crafting God's good world. And the second mention of it is filling two craftsmen. Like Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, craftsmen, metalworkers, stonemasons, woodworkers, Weavers and artists have been filled with the Spirit in order to do what the Spirit has been doing from the beginning, creating. And so this is to say, as the people of God, we should take the work of beauty seriously. Poetry, songwriting, braiding, carpentry, gardening, pottery, and sketching, the work of art should matter deeply to us. Furthermore, neither Bezel El and Oheliab belonged to the clerical tribe. They weren't priests, they weren't ministers, 
nor were they pastors. They did not do what I do, they do what you do. And I think there's something significant when we understand to be filled with the Spirit is not limited to church work. It is not limited to what we do between 10 and 30 and 1130-ish. It's an invitation to see the Spirit working in all of our work. And this metaphor of being filled with the Spirit is introduced here in Exodus 35, but becomes a significant metaphor for our interactions with the Spirit throughout the biblical text. Now, quick aside, I recognize that there are a whole host of doctrinal differences related to the subject of being filled with the Spirit. Craig Keener, a Pentecostal theologian, asserts, and I tend to agree with him that many of these doctrinal differences devolve into semantic differences on the when question. When is one filled with the Spirit? Someone who grew up, maybe Southern Baptist, interprets this as a one-time occurrence at conversion. Pentecostals, Charismatics will often interpret this as an event that occurs sometime after confession. And we'll get into the semantic differences at one point or another because they do matter. The words we choose and the way we choose to explain a doctrine are significant. But the point I want to make with this is maybe the larger reality is that God is blessing and continues to work through Christians and churches with different perspectives on the issue. Could it be that we miss the point by worrying about when and that the more significant invitation is to taste and see that the Lord is good and to learn what it is to walk in partnership with his spirit. To be filled with the spirit is a direct partnership between the spirit and humanity for the sake of the world. It is this biblical imagery of a human vessel being permeated with divine resource. Another metaphor for this phenomenon that's prevalent in the New Testament is baptism in the Holy Spirit, invoking this imagery of one who has been submerged in the deep water of the Spirit in order to experience all that God has for them in the world. If you've been to the ocean, there's nothing like getting in it all the way. It's one thing to watch the waves come in. It is another thing to jump in whole body. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And based on the example of our text, to be filled with the Spirit is to be given access to divine resources. Verse 31 again. God has filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship. He has been filled, he has filled them, excuse me, with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. One would have to assume that Bazel El and Ohiliab have acquired skills through the natural means of instruction, experience, and time. They've honed their craft. But this passage also suggests 
that the creating spirit is furthering their natural abilities beyond what they were able to do previously. That they have been given access to a divine resource, a divine empowerment that takes their natural abilities, their natural experiences, and takes it to a place they haven't previously experienced. And in the mundane of their engraving, in the mundane of their weaving and instructing others, the Spirit of God is with them, leading them to make a dwelling for His glory in their midst. I want to skip quickly to chapter 40 with the closing verses of Exodus. We are told about the product of Bezel El and Oheliab's labor. Exodus 40, verse 35. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all Israel's journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The product of Bezel El and Oheliab's work is a meeting space for God and humanity, an environment in which Israel received the guidance of God in the form of a cloud by day and a fire by night. And two craftsmen, with names few remember and I struggle to pronounce, collaborate with God to create a space in which heaven and earth collide, a place in which glory dwelt. And the Apostle John picks up on this theme when he writes in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt. He pitched a tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the power of the Spirit, our work becomes a focal point where heaven and earth can intersect, where the glory of God can be put on display. And it is work that will endure into eternity. If we think of the garden as a nature retreat, maybe we imagine our life in heaven as a resort. But the final two chapters of our scriptures reimagined that garden transformed into a garden-like city. A garden-like city complete with walls, gates, streets, infrastructure, society, culture, food, drink, music, art, poetry, books, and stories because the garden was never meant to just stay a garden it was always meant to be a garden-like city a place where heaven and earth collide the same apostle writes behold the dwelling place of God is with man he is with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here is the good news about your work. Whatever is noble and beautiful 
and kind and loving and creative and ingenious and good will endure. And whatever is not, will not. This is how N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, puts it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we might call building for God's kingdom. So to work with the Spirit is to collaborate with the God of the universe for the sake of his glory. Worship team, would you join me? So there's a super easy spiritual practice, like just go work. So <laughs> that's the first one. <laughs> like you should be engaged in some level of work, whether that's paid or unpaid. Again, this is a reminder that anytime we are rearranging the raw materials of creation, whether that be information or caring for another, that we are doing our little part in God's work. But I think there's a, another idea we can take away. And Eugene Peterson puts it best when he says that one of the primary location, if not the primary location for our spiritual formation, for our discipleship is in the workplace. Many of us spend at least 40 hours doing something. And I think too often we give God maybe the first few minutes of the day, maybe we spend a few hours with him on Sunday, maybe we go to a micro church, but we've lacked the imagination to see the hours we're clocked in as an opportunity for God to be shaping us, an opportunity for us to steward a spirit-filled formation. And so I think as we go about our work, there's this helpful Jewish concept called kavana. And I think it's helpful. To practice kavana is to cultivate this sense of holy intention. It is to bring the whole of yourself, mind, body, heart, and soul to an activity as an act of worship to God. It is to bring all the intentionality, all the mindfulness, and all the attention you can muster to what is God up to in this moment. How is the Spirit at work with you, in you, and for you? It is to foster an awareness, not just that the Spirit is directing you, but the Spirit is with you. I mentioned the fruit of Bezel El and Ohiliab's work from chapter 40, but I skipped over chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 because these four chapters go into absolutely excruciating detail about their labor. The author will go on to describe curtains, 
wood species, metalworking techniques, and specific design features. It's four chapters of mind-numbing detail about a tent neither you or I will ever see. It's a portion of scripture that is incredibly easy to skip over. But if you take time to read those four chapters, what stands out is Bezel El and Ohiliab's ambition to give God their absolute best. To pull every bit of their attention to the surface of their mind and to serve God with the whole of their being in the work of their hands. Kavana is to bring holy intent to the monotony of work. It is to turn what happens from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. into a sacred space, an opportunity to worship our God. Now listen, I am not naive enough to think that we will feel heaven invading earth every time we type out an email to that coworker in accounts payable. I'm not naive enough to think that as you're pounding out on your keyboard that angry email to your manager that heaven is touching earth. But I am hopeful to imagine that the spirit might be more available to us than we previously thought possible. And so may our simple practice this week to just repurpose a few tasks as opportunities to invite the spirit to work with us. Quick example, growing up, my dad helped me with every single school project, and the energy he brought to those tasks was radically disproportionate to my ability. In second grade, there was a functioning model wagon. That was a whole thing. In seventh grade, we made this medieval longsword that, no joke, I had to take in at 6.30 so I could avoid getting in trouble. Uh, then there were all these hours we spent carving, painting, and simply learning as my dad helped me to do something that was radically beyond my ability. And in the process, we learned what it meant to be father and son. We produced these little projects that no second grader, no seventh grader had any right to turn in for a grade. But the greater joy was learning to work with my dad. Just learning to just spend time with him and learn the layers of his character and his personality, to learn what made him tick. Could it be that God is not just inviting us to work with him, but he is inviting us to know him? To the artists, it's an experience of intimacy creating together with your creating God. To the doctor, experience the intimacy of healing and caring together with your healing God. To the teacher, experience the intimacy of stewarding a child's learning together with your teaching God. To the IT worker, experience the intimacy of problem solving with your intelligent and problem solving God. To the business executive, experience the intimacy of numbers and stewarding wealth with our abundantly resourced God. To the barista, experience the intimacy of hospitality together with your hospitable God. All moments and opportunity to get to know the depth 
of our God's love for us and our neighbor and our world. If you would stand with me to your feet. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are still filling craftsmen with your spirit. We're grateful that you're still showing up to artists, to metal workers, to logistics people, to assistants, to associate managers. You're still showing up to baristas and fry cooks. You're still showing up to delivery drivers and to pastors. We're grateful that your spirit is still filling us. This coming week as we go about our work, may we practice kavana. This sense of holy intention, drawing our minds to the God who is not just guiding us, but the God that is with us. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.